Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching with TBA rabbinic intern Joshua Jacobs. So I just want to open with a starting question. It's a question I've struggled with for a while, which is, is the Torah perfect? Whatever that means to you. Is it a, is it a perfect text? And uh, I once, I grew up at, at Valley Beth Shalom and I, I was walking with with uh, Rabbi Feinstein, and he gave me an answer that always stuck with me, which is, you know, whether or not the Torah is perfect, that, that, that certainly is a, a question that warrants more discussion. But he said, I, I don't know if, if Torah is perfect, but what I do know is that the human process of trying to unfold and understand Torah, that is perfect. And I thought that was a very interesting answer. So I just want to open it up for your responses, if you don't mind. Could you tell me where are you at? with that question. I'd love to hear from some volunteers. Yeah, please join up. Um, to me, what that statement says is um, if it's the human understanding that is perfect, then there is more than one human understanding. And I think that that applies like, you know, multiple people at the same time and also to any one individual over time. Like I know my own perception and understandings of different passages of Torah, um, you know, is refracted through the life that I've led, the experiences that I've had, and, and it changes sometimes over time. There are pieces of it that, that evolve. Um, so to me, the lesson in that is, you know, kind of like, we tend to see truth as very black and white, like there is the truth and it's right or it's wrong. And that's not the case. And and a little bit also in terms of like how we relate to to Jews around the world um, is um, you don't have to be wrong for me to be right. Um, I, and I guess really the Jewish concept, it just occurred to me of what I'm getting at is, is that saying that we have Shivim Panim La Torah, that I mean, 70 being just sort of a round number often representing infinity, like there are infinite faces, infinite possibilities of Torah. Great. Thank you. I think there's so much there, right? This idea of objective truth versus relative truth or human capacity to even comprehend truth at the first place. And especially when you consider all of our different perspectives and just the word you use also evolution, that that evolves in time, um, throughout time and space. Great. Uh, anyone else? Yes, please. Time. Um, when you use the word perfect mm-hmm. in a Jewish context, I don't think of it as it's an English meaning. I think of it as the, um, Rationale given for bris milah. Say more. Um, because I don't know. I don't just. I think it was Rambam that I could be wrong. Rem- remembering wrong. Okay. But I think it was Rambam that explained um, bris milah in two ways. One was helping to control the sexual urge which is a powerful one. But I thought the other one is because human beings in that sign of the covenant need a way to participate. So that has to do with, because I think there was some question if, 
if circumcision were necessary, why didn't God create the male human body without a foreskin, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So someone, some rabbi said, because in, in continuing the covenant in a generation, there needs to be a human act. That's part of it, which okay, of course great. gets into the whole, gets into the whole human bodies that don't have foreskins, but of course, regardless. No, but I, I think that's a really good point to bring into this discussion because in a sense, that's that's where I'm going with this, which is what is the human hand in bringing about that perfection, right? Is is the Torah given perfect or is is it asking for this human act to complete or to have a hand in Torah? So that's, um, I think that's really interesting. Let's go ahead and jump into the text here. The first one I brought is from Exodus, from Shemot 32, 19. Can I have a volunteer to read it? Um, let's just do English for now. Feel free to just unmute yourself. Any takers? It's Gary. I'll do it. Great, Gary. Thank you. As soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. He became enraged, and he hurled the tablets from his hands and shattered them on the foot of the mount. Great. So brief context here, right? We've, uh, Moses has ascended to the mountain, uh, has received the first set of tablets from God, uh, comes back, and much to his dismay, we're partying and worshiping a golden calf. Moses, in his rage, hurls the tablets down, shatters the first set. Um, Gary, can you continue on with the commentary from Or HaChaim, the second text sure. there? It was when he came close to the camp, etc. As a result of their idolatry, it became more mortal. Once more, and a set of laws designed for immortal people were no, was, no, was no longer appropriate for them. This is why those tablets had to be smashed. All of this, this is based on the opinions that Moses had not acted on his own accord when he smashed the tablets. Okay, so there's a few things going on here, but I'd love some reactions and responses to what's being said. I'll just say from 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 my point of view, the few things that jump out at me is first is, as a result of their idolatry, they became mortal once more. So that implies that for a brief moment, they were perfect or immortal. And then that comes crashing down literally and figuratively with the tablets. Um, but a second thing I'm getting here, and this is what I want to focus on, that a set of laws designed for immortal people was no longer appropriate for them. What are some thoughts and reactions to that or anything else in the commentary? But feel free to comment on that. Margulies, did you have something? I was just going to say that was the first time I ever heard or even considered that the laws might have been, the tablets might have been different than what they were when, when he came down, when Moses came down again with them. But I have a question, question going on. But if the tablets, we read the tablets. We read what the first one said and we read what the second one said. Correct me if I'm wrong. Don't we? Because God wrote the stuff on Mount Sinai. We, we hear what he wrote. And then we, we, after they smash it, he does it again. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right. So, no, this is good. We're actually going to get into it because the texts that follow get into that dichotomy. By the way, I think I added a G there. It's Marlies, right? Did I say Marlies? It's Marlies, yeah. Marlies, yes. <laughs> a G crept in there. I don't know why. But um, <laughs> okay. right. So we're actually going to get into that. What is there a difference between the first set and the second set? If there is, right? Because doesn't God say, okay, come back and I'll give you a second set like what was on the first. So we would think it's the same law. Um, but let's go ahead and move straight into it. Um, um, so, may, I, may I say just one thing? Please, please. Yeah. 
if there was a difference mm-hmm. on the first set, the Baltashit, the do not, do not waste would have needed to be there. Because if you have mortals that are still procreating, it becomes even more important because you're going to run out of resource faster. Because no, if no, if no one's dying, then recycling becomes even more important. Oh, absolutely. That's really interesting, right? To, to go in and analyze each law and see how it would have played with an immortal people. Uh, I think that's that's a fascinating point. Uh, Josh, this is Brand. Uh, good to see you. But I'm, I'm see, struck by the fact that this sec, this commentary absolves Moses of any anger. Yeah, yeah. See, see, this, you know, and and it's just it, it 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 strikes me as odd that 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 it's referred to as immortal people, immortal people. I mean, clearly, one of the one of the basis for of Torah is to orient us away from our our most base instincts into something of a more refined human existence but mm-hmm. this whole thing kind of basically says that Moses kind of had to do what he did and he's not acting on his own accord right and this seems to absolve Moses of any mortal feeling which is right. interesting to me and it also ties into the discussion because I, I kind of hit uh, you know, moved brushed past that. So I'm glad you elevated it. This, when we're talking about perfection and whether or not that exists and what that looks like, here are the rabbis uh, absolving Moses of any imperfection, right? He didn't lose his temper, which we know, according to Moses' character, he's done before when he smites the Egyptian. And But the, the rabbis, of course, come to his defense. And, you know, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, we can discuss. But uh, I think that's a very interesting point. And, uh, if what I'm hearing in, in, in the way that you bring it up, I think there's something troubling about that because it glosses over our imperfections and that's not what Judaism is about. It's a very real religion that deals with life in, in real life. So, you know, in, uh, in Bay today, you know, as part of the uh, uh, sermon, Rabbi Schatz explained that um, uh, converts to Judaism, one of the things that they found fascinating is that our, our, our various Texts present alternative views. Mm, correct. In other yeah. words, it's not a one way of viewing something. So the extent to which the Torah is perfect, it clearly has opposing views, minority views, majority views. We know this from even like the rabbinic council. It's used majority and minority opinions, right? Mm-hmm. And and she said that 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 um, uh, uh, people that are new to Judaism are fascinated by the presentation of all different views on an issue. Right. And right. so, you know, perfection in the sense that if there's one view of the Torah, we're never going to reach it because we always have these different views. Or maybe the perfection is the different views. Beautiful. Right. That's the Elu Elu. These and these are the words of the living God. Right. Um, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And we preserve the minority opinion, uh, which in a way is getting us even closer to truth than one answer would be. And I think that's a. a, a a very important contribution of, of the Jewish faith. Um, okay, let's move forward. I'll go ahead and, and read. This is from Shemot from Exodus 34.1. The Lord said to Moses, carve two tablets of stone like the first, and I will inscribe upon the tablets the words that were written on the first ones which you shattered. Right? So it seems like this would be the same, except the next commentary is going to pick up on something that you might have missed. I sure did the first time I read it, which is God saying to Moses, carve two tablets. Here's a barbanel. 
The first set were both carved and inscribed by God, while the second set were carved by Moses, who did not inscribe them, and inscribed by God, who did not carve them. So what Abarbanel is picking up on is that the first tablets were both carved and inscribed by God. It was a completely divine uh, uh, product. The second one, however, was carved by Moses and written on by God, so there seems to be a partnership in this one, a human hand in this one. So I'm going to, I'm going to read the second, the last of Barbanel, and then I'll open it up for thoughts. Why did the second set of tablets have greater holiness than the first set as indicated by the verse and no man shall ascend the mountain with you. What he's saying here is that when it came time to carve the second tablets, God seems to put in place some extra laws that imply a greater holiness for the second one. Right, because in the second Torah it says, "Let no man ascend the mountain with you." But for the first tablets, the verse said, "Ascend to God, you and Aharon and Nadav and Avihu." Right, so the, the first for the first set, you could have these other people come up, important people nonetheless. But you could have them come with you, Moses, up to the mountain. But this time, no, nobody comes around. So Abarbanel is saying there's greater holiness in the second one because of these extra limitations. Also, here the verse warned, "The sheep and the cattle shall not graze adjacent to the mountain." While no such restriction appears with respect to the first tablets, it appears the second tablets that Moses carved were holier than the first set carved by God. I think this is a radical thing to say, because what kind of logic gets you to something that God created and wrote is less holy than something that people had a role in? Uh, So some some responses, reactions to this. Not specifically to this, but to the overall theme that we're exploring, um, it occurs to me that I don't think there actually is a word for perfection in Hebrew. I think that the word for perfection in Hebrew that people would use is shleimut. But shleimut doesn't really mean perfection. It means a sense, it's also, it's kind of a hard word to translate back into English, but it means a sense, if I have it right, of like, of completeness, of wholeness, of being at peace. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think if we refer to the Torah as perfection, then as someone said before, it almost becomes something that is completely like unattainable. Is perfection ever attainable? But to strive to be, you know, let's say like at peace with oneself and at peace with others, um, you know, is, is I think a different lens on what, um, on what we on what we're striving for then to say, you know, are we striving for perfection? Mm. Right. So is, is perfection the ultimate goal or is it peacefulness? Shlemut? It seems to me that this, these commentators are are um, uh, uh, recognizing that the top down system of God writing the Torah and providing it to the people is not going to work. Mm-hmm. That what the, the the fact that Moses carves it, but it's inscribed by God, shows you that the only way we're going to survive is in partnership with God. Mm-hmm. We do, he does, or she does, God does, we do. We work together to accomplish this this task of 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 developing these tablets. But just like anything else, we have to work in partnership with God, and we can't just rely on God to do it for us. And I think. 
that's what this is hitting, hinting at. And that's really true, right? I mean, the reality is we're in partnership with God. We're creating the image of God, but we have to take our role and God has to take its role. And together we can accomplish something that's, that's, that's better than ourselves, but we can't do it if it's just top down and we can't do it by ourselves. I think that's really profound, right? And I think it's something that is uh, a, a real charge for us as human beings that we're not just our role in life isn't necessarily just to um, passively obey, but rather to actively, I guess, to use Joanna's language, like achieve to, to actively fulfill, to actively uh, strive to better understand the Torah in an evolving sense, because we have a role in, in achieving God's will. Uh, and how much, more exciting is that than than to be more passive agents. Instead, we we, we have that um, ability to act and shape. Uh, Tybal, yes. Um, it's hard to follow that that comment, but mine's a different kind of comment. I just wanted to say that when coming on, I hadn't seen the source sheet yet. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I picked a cameo which is inscribed for a Shavuos topic, it's Ruth, is just. Uh, synergy in the world. That's what, thank you for saying that. That's great. It's, I love when things work out that way. Um, w- this final text, we're not going to have time for, and I knew that going into it. So it, I, but I selfishly wanted to put it in because I, I love it so much. And maybe it's really a, a text study of its own. Um, so I'll have to, or like when we have more time, maybe. But I want to summarize it for you. This is from modern day. Uh, feminist Midrash uh, literature. This is uh, Rivka Luvitz. It's called The Midrash of a Refused Woman. And what it does here, first, you, in order to understand or really appreciate the story, you have to appreciate the Tanur of Achnai story, the Oven of, of Achnai, which you might already be familiar with. But in brief summary, there are two rabbis that are you know, basically in a Midrash and they're Beit Midrash and they're arguing, uh, is this oven Tahor or Tameh? Is it pure or impure? Um, one says it's pure, the other says it's impure, and they debate it. And one says, I know that it is pure. And, and, and to prove it, let, you know, this X miracle happen. And it happens. And uh, the rabbi who says it's impure maintains it's impure. Uh, you know, the miracle doesn't persuade me. And then he says, I, but I know that it is pure. And if I'm right, let this other miracle happen. And it happens and so on and so forth. And, but it's still, the argument persists. He doesn't, he says it, it still maintains that it's not pure until Bat Kol, a voice of God enters the room and says that the halakha is according to the one who says that it is pure. And, and the rabbi uh, uh, who was arguing that it's impure points a finger to God and says, lo bashamayim he quoting Torah, saying that the Torah is not in heaven. Uh, you've given it to us. Uh, um, uh, uh, so basically, we don't, we don't, we don't uh, uh, derive our answers from the bot kol. So he, and, and God laughs, smiles, and says, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. Um, what this Midrash does is it takes that same exact structure, but instead of uh, two rabbis arguing about whether an oven is, is tahor tameh, uh, it's a woman who's seeking a get, and the rabbi refuses and says, uh, I'm sorry, you, I can't give you a get. Uh, this is right a case of a woman who um, the, the husband has divorced her, but 
but won't give her a bill of divorce or a get, so she is stuck, an aguna, uh, an anchored woman. She can't remarry uh, without, breaking, uh, uh, without breaking Torah. Um, so she's stuck, and she wants to be liberated from that, and the rabbi says, I can't do it. And, it keep, and, and she says, if I, I know I deserve a get, and to, to prove it, let this miracle happen, and it happens, and so on and so forth, and, to, and the rabbi keeps maintaining no, um, to the point where uh, the Batkol God comes down and says, she's right, give her the get, and the rabbi says, lo bashamayim he, and God, instead of laughing, cries and says, my children have defeated me, my children have defeated me. And it's such a powerful story, and it, uh, you know, it, it really gets me emotionally every time I read it. And the reason I wanted to share it is that I think that we've received these two tablets, right? The first set and the second set. And the first set may have been this perfect set for immortal people. And the second one has our human hand in it. And it requires this partnership between us and God. And I think that through the way that we seek to uncover that what is right in the, and wrong in the world, we can get closer to that first more perfect set this 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 aguna problem is a problem that is exists in the torah and you might ask how could something like that exist in a perfect torah and so you could say well it's imperfect or you could say well it's a partnership and we have a role in peering back through to try to return to this first more perfect torah and that's and, and we do that by continuing to wrestle with and struggle with our text and um and try to achieve that first celestial Torah. Any thoughts and reactions to that? And then we'll move on. I just want to say it's beautiful. That's why the, that's why the Torah is a living document because we can't, we can't, we can't predict where it's going to go, you know, and, and this is a, a, a brilliant piece on how the Torah evolves to deal with situations that could not have been contemplated. Mm-hmm. That's one of the beautiful things about Judaism. It's one of the beautiful things about conservative Judaism, that that we all take baby steps. You know, we're not ne- we're not ne- we're never back into the dark ages, but we but 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 we step a little bit faster than orthodoxy, and that's probably part of its perfection as well. And th- this this dialogue that takes place is is wonderful to read because it shows we we don't live in the past. And this is an ongoing, and you and I sitting here today, even though you're a lot younger than me and I'm close to your dad's age, we can't predict where this is going to go mm-hmm. 100 years from now. And it'll be different than what we're looking at today. And that's the beauty of it. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting to point to, to our denomination and, uh, you know, if, if we can pat ourselves on, on the back for a moment. And that's not to the expense of the other movements, but we, we've basically made this Aguna situation eradicated because of, you know, Kedushin Al-Tanai or the Lieberman Clause, these, these different ways of, and it's not a purely conservative movement thing, you know, other movements uh, make use of them as well. But in, in doing that, are we, are we contradicting Torah or are we actually fulfilling our role as God's partner in bringing about that original set that, that, you know, can still exist if we can get there. So I, I think that's a, a good charge into this into this week and Shavuot and, and beyond. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.